A lot of us feel like we're in a good place on diversity and inclusion. We're welcoming leaders. We support people who are different than us. We're woke, right? Not sure about you, but I know I can do better. On this episode, an invitation for us all to keep moving forward. This is Coaching for Leaders, episode 441. Produced by Innovate Learning. Maximizing human potential. Greetings to you from Orange County, California. This is Coaching for Leaders, and I'm your host, Dave Stahovia. Leaders aren't born, they're made. And this weekly show helps you discover leadership wisdom through insightful conversations. One of the opportunities we all have as leaders is to be able to influence diversity and inclusion within our organizations. It is an opportunity that we all have the responsibility to do better at than we do today. It is also a very challenging topic for many of us, regardless of our past life experiences and our training, to be able to do well in a way that is authentic. Today, I am so glad to welcome someone who's an expert in this area is going to help us to really take the next step on how we can become even more mindful on diversity and and inclusion, and also really help us to take the first step, as so many of us are always excited about doing. I'm glad to welcome to the show today, Willie Jackson. Willie is a speaker, consultant, and facilitator. He's a technologist by trade, and now makes waves at the intersection of event production, behavior change, and leadership development. He's the founder of an online magazine for black men named Abernathy, and an advisor to authors, startups, and executives across a range of industries. Prior to his current work, Willie served as the technical lead of Seth Godin's Alt-MBA program, an intensive four-week online workshop for high-performing individuals who want to level up and lead. Willie, I'm so glad to welcome you to the show. Oh, Dave, I'm thrilled to be here. How's your day? It is going fabulous, and I am just looking forward to our conversation here all week, actually. And as I was thinking about you and your background, and we, and as I mentioned in the intro, you, you've done work with Seth Godin. You've been a, you, you're a technologist. You haven't always been doing work around diversity and inclusion. How did you get into doing this work? I was kind of shielded from a lot of social challenges, shall we say, growing up. I'm the product of a private school education in suburbia in North Florida, and that limited my exposure to certain things. And you know, with the advent of social media, and I'm a millennial, so I'm, I'll be 35 in January. So my social cohort was on social media, right? I remember being an undergrad when Facebook became a thing. And so through that, I got a lot of my news, my exposure to the world, et cetera, through Facebook and Twitter in particular. And I noticed what felt like an uptick in issues of police violence, police brutality, just these unfortunate collisions of law enforcement and the the state more generally and communities of color, specifically people that looked like me. And that brought up so much for me that I had to really do some work about it. But the, the punchline is that I wanted to do something about it. I needed a way to channel my confusion, anger, questions. I had so much that came up for me that I wanted to do something productive with. And like any self-respecting entrepreneur, I started an online magazine for Black men. And that became kind of an intellectual coming of age for me. And through that journey, 
425 articles later. I refer to that as like an intellectual coming of age for me and a way that I built a name for myself. I started publishing a newsletter and talking to journalists and thinkers and speakers and strategists and folks who've spent a lifetime dedicating themselves to certain of these causes. And I've found a lane for myself, a way of showing up in the world that works for me, and really a, a path of discovery and having conversations across differences. So at, at a high level, that's kind of what my journey has looked like and, and some of those genesis points that kind of led me to where we are today. One of the things I really appreciate from our past conversations, Willie, is just the complexity that you bring in the in the appropriate complexity of how many facets there are to what we're discussing. And I, I'm recalling you saying, just by virtue of the fact, for those of us who are Americans, like growing up and living in the society, we are all touched by this. And we all have, uh, I shouldn't say all of us, some of us have a lot of privilege more so than others. And yet we're all grappling with this. And we also all make mistakes. And that's one of the things I'm remembering from our past conversations is you, you saying, you know, you're going to make mistakes at entering into this space where you're talking about diversity and inclusion. Tell me more about what you mean. Yeah, it would actually be more surprising if we didn't have more blunders, Dave. You know, we live in a context where for the comfort of the dominant group, it's actually vital that certain things are not obvious, right? So let's take one or a few fun facts, for instance. The wealth gap in this country, the black-white wealth gap, is 20 to 1. In living memory, Black folks could not own property. So you know, taking that on board, it, it, it boggles the mind that we've seen as much progress as we have, right? So we don't actually have a language to talk about some of these things, and it's really, really hard to discuss them. You know, one of the classic examples is, you know, dominant group folks, white folks have not had an occasion to think about what it means to hold the identity that they have as it relates to other people groups. Our neighborhoods right now are more segregated than they were in the 50s, right, when we had redlining and the legal de facto enforcement of segregation. So what that means is we are growing up in homogenous environments where you can map zip codes to professional outcomes, which is to say many neighborhoods and schools are well-resourced, have a diversity of teachers, and certain folks, depending on your background, are encouraged along a particular track. If, by contrast, you happen to grow up in a neighborhood blighted by disinvestment and the historical impact of redlining and all of the ills of society that make it more challenging for certain schools to be well-resourced, et cetera, it is significantly more challenging to reach escape velocity, right? To overcome those circumstances because it's not merely an issue of hard work or intelligence or aptitude. It is the circumstances. When you look at neighborhoods affected by what we call hypersegregation, like Chicago and Milwaukee and Baltimore. When you talk to the folks there and look at the circumstances under which they're living, you know, poverty and violence and so forth, it's affecting the body like it affects the body in a war zone. Right? There is violence, there is economic depression, there are systemic impacts of a whole generation of Black men, for example, being in jails as a result of selling you know, a $5 bag of weed. 
the very same substance, right, that a generation of entrepreneurs in Colorado are going to become multimillionaires around. So when you start to look at many of these social movements as combined with many policy decisions, such as the war on drugs, and the way that they differentially impact our communities, to say nothing of economic disinvestment and education system inequities and so forth, it's really hard to begin to wrap your arms around where to begin. It's just an enormous problem set that we are all implicated in, and it can become overwhelming and disempowering for even the most motivated and progressive folks to begin to grapple with. One thing that's come up for me thinking about this over the last few years is just starting with the conversation. And and perhaps this is my own bias, Willie, of just thinking about my work and how much is built around conversations. I have found that I have made some more movement myself when I've had conversation. And perhaps I can share some of the places I've messed up on this and the mistakes I've made in doing just this work through the podcast, if that'd be helpful. Yeah, let's start there. That could be interesting to do kind of a live debrief because um, I think it probably ties to a lot of things that we talk about in this work that I do. So when I started this podcast back in 2011, I had the very conscious thought of if I'm going to do, back then no one was listening, so I wasn't, this was mostly just me, myself, but I thought I should really do a good job of having a pretty good balance between men and women on the show political perspectives, even though we don't talk about politics in the show. I mean, I'm, I'm mindful that we have guests who have you know, different political beliefs, and I try to be mindful of getting a pretty diverse representation and, and thinking about even sexual orientation of certainly people whose, whose stories I knew. And so that was my journey for the first few years of just you know, really trying to be mindful of those things. And I think it was about episode, maybe about 200, so about halfway through, several years in, and I received an email from a woman, and it was, it was a very well-written, kind, professional email. And I will not do it justice from what I'm about to say, but the concise version is, she said, I really appreciate your show. It's helped me out a lot. And I'm also noticing that you haven't had a lot of people of color on your show. And I remember sitting there reading the email, and I got to the end of the email, and I thought, huh. Interesting, because it hadn't really ever consciously crossed my mind to be thinking about our guest list through the lens of color. And so I went and looked at the website, and I pulled up the list of all the past episodes. And we've got pictures of you know, most of our guests. And I started scrolling through. And Willie, I was horrified. Mm-hmm. Like It's one of those moments that I remember in my professional journey of like, holy cow. I just went four years, and there was almost no guest of color at all in the first you know, several years of the show. And I mean, it started for me a journey down this path, which is a journey is the right word, because it's, you know, it's been a journey, of really having to examine where the choices I was making and my intentions and the impact of even though the intentions were good, or at least not bad, of what was showing up as a result of me not doing a better job at making sure that the outcome matched the intention. Such a good example, Dave. Thank you so much for sharing that. Yeah, I think a lot of people 
struggle similarly, right? So this is a, you know, you started out with an intention to have a diverse slate of speakers and guests on the show. And, you know, years into this journey, you had a blind spot revealed to you. I think that's such a great example of the starting point for a lot of folks entering into this conversation. And from there, it can go in a few different directions. It's very common for folks to feel defensive. It's common for people to not know where to go from there. Like, well, like what do you start doing? Do you just start emailing friends and say, hey, looking for guests of color, uh, right? And, and, and that can come with this notion of tokenizing people, like yeah. looking for people on the basis solely of their identity or representation, right? Which, which isn't necessarily great because that actually you know, can flatten our humanity. People have more to offer uh, than their identity and their race and ethnicity, for example. That was my first, int- my first leading thought. I was like, oh, I need to go find more people of color to be on the guest list. And as I talked it through with a few people, I, I kind of backed away from that first in- initial thought uh, pretty quickly of, to your point, that to me felt very token of like, well, if I'm going out and trying to consider someone just because they have a certain right. skin color, or something, right. like that looks better, but it doesn't really address where I want to go as a person and mm-hmm. as a broader conversation about what leadership, I think, means in America and globally today. Yeah, I love that. That's exactly right. And and this, you know, kind of gets at the previous points that we were discussing. There is no clear path forward necessarily, right? Because we have the communities that we have, we have the friends that we have. If you happen to be born in a particular family, in a particular neighborhood, in a particular socioeconomic class, your network is naturally going to look a certain way. It might be homogenous. You might not have built deep and sustained relationships where you have certain connections in the business world. You may know folks socially, you may be friendly with with many, many folks of color, but that may not necessarily align with your business network as it stands, right? So where do you go from there, right? So these are some of the challenges that I think some of the brightest minds and, and progressive folks are grappling with really without support. Because it's, uh, it's reinforced by our media, it's reinforced by our neighborhoods. I do consulting, for example, for tech companies in the San Francisco Bay Area, where I live most of the time, and all of the managers live in the same neighborhood, right? And th- these are not cheap neighborhoods, right? So there is so much preventing the easy cross-pollination and, and really this cultural osmosis, right, that's reinforced by things way above our pay grade, One of the things that the research shows is that when we have biases and stereotypes that we've internalized, one of the things that really helps is exposure to people not like us, right? It's not rocket science. There's a Slack bot. There's a tool available for the messaging platform that many of us use called Slack, uh, called Donut. And it's for organizations to pair off with people that are not like you so you can Mm -hmm. have a coffee chat with them. And, you know, it's cute. It's really simple. But it ties to the research, right? Exposure reliably helps to shift some of these blind spots and these biases and really addressing stereotypes that we don't necessarily know that we even hold. So if you look across America and you see the communities and groups of people that have the most intolerant racial beliefs, it's often the people with least exposure to other groups of people, right? So there's just a fascinating impact that exposure and intimacy has on our working relationship. So I'd be curious, Dave, what has your journey looked like from there? You know, how is it that we came to be on this conversation or where did you go from this place of realization? 
It's funny you ask that because I was thinking about how you and I connected a uh, first time when I was preparing for our conversation today. And one of the things I started to do was just have more conversation. Like I talked to Bonnie a bunch about it. I talked to some of our other friends. I We have a friend who's a sociology professor that I talked to a couple of times about like, you know, just thinking about this, like how did, what's a healthy way to approach getting better at this. And Jonathan Raymond was one of the people I had that conversation with, who's been on the show several times. And he introduced me to you originally, I think it was a couple of years ago now. That's um, right. And so what I found to be helpful is to do what I encourage our leaders in our academy to do and the folks I'm working with is tell people what you're working on, help people to help you who probably want to help you and also who have more wisdom and experience than you do on whatever the topic is, in this case, diversity. And things will emerge from there. And then where that's gone since then is being more mindful of following organizations and individuals and entering into conversations of people who I know are going to think and look differently than I do. And making that a leading intention in order to eventually come to a place where I broaden my network and we have a guest list that really, and today does a better job. It's still not where it should be, but it does a better job of representing what I want to see leadership in our country look like. But for me, it's really being able to, like you said, get in places where people aren't thinking the way you are, which I find is a constant struggle to do that well and to do that consistently. Yeah, totally. I love what you said about making folks aware of what you're working on and what you're looking to attract, right? So one of the things that many organizations can do and have a tremendous amount of anxiety around, frankly, is putting out there that they're looking to plot a new course. So for example, if they're looking to get a diverse slate of applicants, you know, just putting pen to paper and socializing that job description to different communities can be so daunting and so anxiety inducing. So that's actually, you know, the level of support that I'm, I'm, you know, working with some people. And often that's as simple as making an introduction because we have these silos, right? We have these networks, there are these mailing lists, alumni groups that, you know, often skew towards a particular demographic. You've said to me before, we don't rise to the level of our ambition. We sink to the level of our training. Tell me yeah. more about that. Many people try and come to this work of diversity and inclusion saying, okay, Willie, tell me everything I need to know so I never make a mistake. And this is rooted in a deep, deep fear around embarrassing themselves, being publicly shamed. You know, in our politically volatile environment, global context, we see opportunities all the time of people really stepping in it, wording something a little carelessly, something coming out a little awkwardly, and entire communities and groups of people taking offense either justifiably or maybe reading something uncharitably and so forth. So I think a lot of people are holding concern that they're going to embarrass themselves or make a mistake. We guarantee people that they will make a mistake. So a lot of this ally skills framework and training that I'm doing is about repairing harm. How do you just apologize instead of explaining away, uh, well, I grew up this way and I'm you know, meant to this way. And you know, in, instead of you know, what I call a hostage situation where you just explain to the person that you've offended why you're justifying it or why you shouldn't feel bad, how can you just apologize, correct yourself, and move on? We have to practice because this, this stuff isn't in muscle memory. 
when you look at folks that support uh, women in the wake of or recovery from issues of violence, uh, sexual assault, and so forth, they practice dialing 911. They practice, they practice, they practice, because you'd be surprised the number of people that dial 411 in the wake of an emergency, right? So that's where that thinking comes from. We actually need to practice ahead of time how we will respond to a complex social scenario because we don't have the training. None of us have the training. And it's just vital that we think ahead of time about how we will respond to certain scenarios so we can bring our values to bear in those moments. Speaking of those moments, when we make the mistake and it's apparent that we have, like you said, we're going to, right? What makes the difference for the people who are able to stop in the moment and fight that natural human response and to be able to apologize? And I guess I'm also curious, like, how? What do you teach people to do when they catch themselves in that moment and they're, maybe they're thinking like, oh, how can I defend what I've just said? What should they do? I'm so sorry. That's it. You know, you don't have to explain it away. And another thing I would say is you don't have to fix it in that moment. Give everyone an out, right? So we feel this compulsion towards fixing everything in that moment so things don't get worse. When you feel yourself becoming emotionally activated and triggered, and there's maybe an issue that has come out of nowhere and you've been blindsided, it's okay to apologize and say, listen, I need to gather my thoughts. I appreciate this feedback. Thank you so much for bringing this to my attention. Can I follow with you after lunch or tomorrow and get some time on your calendar to discuss? It's okay to revisit that conversation later. Take a lap, talk it out with a friend, maybe write it down. Whatever your process is for getting out that stress and anxiety, maybe you need to go you know, and yell in the shower or you know, hit the gym, whatever your process is, but you got to move your body. We actually store this trauma in our fascia, in our bloodstream, in our body. This can become trapped in our, you know, quite literally trapped in our bodies, and that stress needs a place to go. So it's okay to segment our response. You, know, you can model humility in that moment, and I think humility is the absolute bedrock of this work. This doesn't mean that you need to be hat in hand and you know apologize for everything that your antecedents did. Everybody from the end of time, apologize for slavery. You don't have to do that, right? Just apologize in that moment. Thank somebody for bringing it to your attention. Move on and revisit it once you've gathered your thoughts. I'm conscious of the fact that there are folks listening to this conversation who will have all kinds of different reactions to what we're saying. And just thinking about diversity as far as our guest list, I suspect there are folks who will be on one end of the spectrum who will hear me share my story and journey and be very disappointed that I am not further along on this journey and feeling like we are still as a show not doing a very good job at this. And then I also suspect there are folks on the other side of that spectrum who will hear me share that and say, well, what's the problem? Like, why is that an issue? And then all the way in between, all along that spectrum. And I am curious about thinking about that and thinking about privilege, because a lot of this is about privilege, right? And I sure have a lot of it as a white, straight, Christian man living in America. When I and people like me show up in your workshops, Willie, and in the conversations about diversity, what are the things that you want the people with privilege to know? Well, first of all, we all have privilege, right? And I, I don't say that to trivialize your point. So let's take an example. I am a six foot three, 250 pound black male. When I think about physical 
safety concerns. There aren't many cities and neighborhoods that I can't walk through, period. Right. So, you know, barring, you know, gang violence, et cetera, thing, things like that. As I say, nobody's throwing Willie Jackson in the back of a van. That would be a bad day for everybody. Right. So <laughs> I have I have a tremendous I don't get talked over in meetings. I don't get ignored in the way that many of my female identified colleagues might be and being talked over and interrupted. So I have a tremendous opportunity and a tremendous amount of agency in those moments to redirect a conversation point towards somebody who's been interrupted and being talked over. This happens in meetings with my CEO. I'm a black male. My, my CEO is a black woman. And in times where we're meeting with clients and over video across a range of identities, people will often direct their questions and their attention towards me instead of my CEO. There are many things to unpack there, right? That's totally subconscious for a lot of people. We don't even realize we're doing it. I think the first thing to, to acknowledge is that it's hard approaching many of these conversations. The humility it takes to show up and say, look, this world might be built for me and I'm looking to do better. I'm looking to illuminate my blind spot. I think it's just vital that we honor and empathize with the journey that everybody's on. One of the community norms that we set in my workshops is we don't judge. Like we, we don't judge people's journey. Not everybody has been exposed to this consciousness and this thinking. And I'm dealing with, in many cases, the front lines of social change, where people are having these transformational experiences. The other thing I would say is, I'll bring a little bit of the research into it. Kenji Yoshino, a law professor at NYU, did some research at IBM related to something he calls covering, which is to say, not bringing all of ourselves to work, if you want to think about it like that. And what he shows is that 40% of white men report covering at work, which is to say, not bringing all of themselves to work. Typically, that's along age and mental health status. I mentioned this to a CEO yesterday on a call, and he confessed to me that he was bipolar, and it really resonated. And this is the CEO of a publicly traded company confiding in me that, yeah, you know, that's me. I you know, have bipolar disorder, and I don't tell most people that. So I think it's just vital to acknowledge the public way in which white men are Yes, sometimes unfairly castigated just by dint of their phenotype, just by dint of the way that they look, just by dint of the way that they present. And I think that creates many, many barriers to conversation. I work with a lot of organizations where white men aren't a part of the conversation because nobody asks them to, right? So we talk about this conversation, but one of the values that I really put forward is we need to invite people with power, access, and privilege to this conversation so we can start to affect change. We don't just need a room full of angry Black folks or angry bound folks or angry diverse folks to be, you know, frothing and getting angry and talking about systems of oppression and change. I think there is a space for affinity groups and conversations among communities that look similarly. I, th I think that's a vital part of this work. I think there's also work that white folks need to do in white spaces. I don't need to be a part of those conversations at all. That, that's also vital work. But I think we need to honor the challenge and the humility that it takes to show up and say, look, I have been reinforced all my life in a particular way. I've been rewarded for things that I've earned. I've been rewarded for things that I maybe haven't earned. I think the humility that it takes to show up for those conversations needs to be acknowledged as a starting point and a building block for our empathy. And once we put that posture on the table where folks can start to relax, start to settle into the moment, and we can do some sharing across differences, I think that's a vital 
foundational level for this work. I can point you towards 100 books, 100 articles, things that might change your life. But if you don't feel safe, seen, and feel the psychological invitation and and safety to show up as yourself in a conversation, we're not going to get anywhere. You said starting point a couple of times along the way there. And I'm thinking about our conversation that way too, Willie, of a starting point, not an ending point, of us opening this space for more conversation and hopefully having you back on the show. And and also for those listening, I suspect some of you will have thoughts for us and maybe even think differently than what you've heard from either of us today. And I would invite you to step into that space and reach out to us and hit a reply on the weekly guide or on LinkedIn and let us know what you're thinking. And for those who want to dive in more, you know, Willie, you are just so talented in the work you're doing and have done so much great work for organizations. And I know one of the things that you're doing a ton is going and speaking to organizations and helping organizations to do a better job at being able to reach their own starting points. So for those who want to reach out to you, is that a good way to do it is through your website or being able to start online some way? Yeah, that would be amazing. I love having these conversations. There's nothing like being in the same room as Seth Godin says, breathing the same air as another person and having a conversation about these topics. But yeah, it's, it's just WillieJackson.com, W-I-L-L-I-E, Jackson.com. And that's where a lot of my work and projects can be seen there. So yeah, I'd, I'd be delighted to talk to folks interested in advancing some of these vital conversations. I'm really conscious also of what you said a few minutes ago of like the the books and the articles and all those are a resource. There's more to do than that. For those who are conscious of that and maybe are looking for the book or the resource just to start to dive in a little bit more on this thinking, would you be up for maybe sharing with me that we could put in the show notes, you know, a couple of resources that for those who want to take that initial step would be really useful as a beginning starting point? I'd be honored to. Yeah, I I would be delighted to pull together a range of resources that I think folks would really appreciate. If you really want to go towards one of the, I don't want to call it an an extreme end, but the the language itself is going to be polarizing, and I think that's fine. There's a book out now by Dr. Ibram X. Kendi called How to Be an Anti-Racist. Right? And he puts forward this idea that there's no such thing as a not racist person. Right? Uh, like w- We are either perpetuating certain things or we are pushing back against certain things. This book came out of his research in writing his previous book, which is called Stamped from the Beginning, uh, A History of Racist Ideas in America, which you've seen like President Obama reading and, and, and others. And it's a really sweeping, exhaustive history of a really interesting theory he put forth. And during the course of writing this book, Ibram Kendi, who's a black man and a professor at uh, American University, he runs a, a racial equity center there. He realized that he had beliefs that were actually racist himself towards his own people. So this book is a framework and an analysis of many of the ideas that we've internalized. It's not about good people and bad people. It's not just about blind spots as well. It's about what we can do to affect social change. So off the top of my head, I think that's a book where if you feel called towards that kind of inquiry, that book would be a fantastic starting point. So really interesting you recommend that book. I didn't know the book, but I went down this journey. Like that my first thought when I had that, you know, I pulled up the guest list and got that email was, oh, am I a racist? Right? And <laughs> so good. And, Maybe I shouldn't have laughed, but that's hilarious. No, no. But but and the answer is yes. Mm. Yeah. That's yeah. the answer. That's the honest yeah. answer. Yeah. And I came to a place after that thinking I was doing it myself of 
then realizing like that's not the best way to frame the question, right? There's a lot more nuance there. And and it's about how do I get better? The binary isn't helpful, as you've said a couple of times during this conversation. So I think that that's a, I know that's a book I'll definitely engage with, and I think it'd be a wonderful starting point for, for those in our audience that are interested in walking down that journey, too. I have one more question for you. You know, leadership's so much about a journey for all of us, and you and I have talked a bit about our journeys today. As you've been doing this work over the last several years, and as you've been going into the, the different places and receiving the invitations for organizations to want to get better at this, what have you changed your mind on? I had to do a lot of this internal work, learning my history for the first time at 30 years old, et cetera. What came out of that was me going through a really, really dark place. And I was skeptical of a lot of, frankly, the work that I do now for a living. I didn't think it was very effective. I thought it was a lot of coddling. I thought we could do a lot better. And over the course of dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens of conversations that I've had with executive teams and extremely accomplished leaders of all stripes in going through some of the most, what I would say, I'd call fairly fundamental and basic concepts around diversity, equity, inclusion, race, identity, et cetera. I have seen the lights come on for so many people, people in positions of influence and power, just by creating the space to talk about certain of these topics to confront certain biases in the room, to hear a different perspective for the first time, these things are really, really having an impact. And it's one of the reasons I feel so alive and aligned in the work that I do right now is because it works. It has an impact. It does seem to be worth doing for me. So I think before, and you can look at some of my writing and it bears this out from years ago, I was really skeptical of doing diversity and inclusion work. It felt like it wasn't moving things quickly enough and hard enough. But the reality is that we have to meet people where they are. And if you say the right thing to the right person on the right day, you have a fighting chance of implementing some change. Willie Jackson, thanks so much for your wisdom. Thanks for having me, Dave. Willie was very kind to pass along a number of resources to those of us who'd like to dive in further on this conversation. I will have those posted in the episode notes and in this week's weekly leadership guide that comes on Wednesday. So if you'd like to get access to that in your inbox, just go over to coachingforleaders.com, set up your free membership. That'll give you access to all the weekly leadership guides, plus all of the other benefits of free membership. In addition to those resources, several past episodes I'd recommend if today's conversation was helpful to you and you'd like to dive in more. One of those conversations was on episode 172, How to Handle Workplace Bullying with Jill Morgenthaler. Jill was a colonel in the U.S. Army at a time that many women had not yet reached that level of leadership in our armed forces, and she talks in detail on episode 172 on her journey what it was like to work in an environment and in a culture where I was pretty much all male-dominated at the time she was in the military, and her journey of that. And I think it's very much related to today's conversation on diversity and inclusion. So much there for you. Episode 172 is that. I'd also recommend episode 210, How to Tame Workplace Incivility with Sharon Bar-David. Sharon has been on the show several times. Uh, she is an expert coach, especially in working with 
people who tend to be um, a little more caustic would be the best way to say it. And she, in that episode, really taught me a number of things that uh, I know I've used in the past, terms like, you know, we're all a family here, and things that a lot of times we say as leaders, and we mean very well by them, but can be read in ways we don't anticipate and set a culture of a place where we're being incivil, and and we don't want to set that culture and that expectation through our words. Um, Episode 210 think it'll be helpful to you to get some additional perspective on what's the right language to use and how do we set the right cultural expectations. And then finally, I'd recommend episode 307, How to Make Inclusion Happen with Deepa Pershathaman. Deepa is with Deloitte, and she, in that episode, talked in detail about really the work that Deloitte has been doing over the past several years to support diversity inclusion in a very large organization. A lot of you have reached out to me and mentioned how useful that conversation has been and some of her ideas. And she's on to some new things now in her career and will probably be back on the show at some point here in the future. She's a wonderful person to learn from for all of us. Uh, Episode 307 is where to go for that. All of those past episodes you can track down on the coachingforleaders.com website, one of the topic areas inside the free membership portal under our episodes is diversity and inclusion. You'll find other episodes uh, that will support our ongoing conversation on this. And as I mentioned with Willie today, this is a journey. We will have many more conversations coming on this topic and, of course, every topic related to leadership. Next week, please join me for my conversation with Tasha Yurik. We are going to be talking about how to become more self-aware. If that is a goal for you, as it is for me and so many of us in leadership, uh, join us for that conversation. And if you haven't already, activate your free membership for full access to all of the past interviews since 2011. Coachingforleaders.com is where to go. See you next Monday for our conversation with Tasha. Take care.